Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Uh, thank you, Claire. Uh, Marco, if I could pray for you and then uh, to you to speak. Heavenly Father, we pray for Marco now. Lord. Uh, we thank you that uh, you have helped him these past few days uh, to open your word. Thank you that he's found it fresh and exciting. And Father, we pray that by your spirit, Lord, that you would speak through him and speak into our hearts and minds. We ask this in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. 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 Thank you, Claire, for reading. Thank you, for Peter, for praying. Hi, everyone. Um, I would guess uh, I would guess that this parable about the prodigal son uh, is probably the best known of all Jesus's parables. Um, and just before it, the the passage Wayne preached for us last Sunday, uh, chapter fourteen. You remember the the demand of discipleship, possibly the most um, 
severe passage in Luke's gospel, at least insofar as Jesus begins to separate true followers from the merely curious. Um, and these two big mountain peaks of Luke's gospel uh, draw much attention. Rightly so, they should. But something happened to me this week as I was, uh, as I was preparing uh, that I wasn't expecting. My heart was captured in a, in a new way by two little verses that we can easily pass by without really even noticing them between those two great peaks. That's, um, and those are verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. So we're going to look at the whole of chapter 15, but with our focus on verses 1 and 2. Now, it's an important question to ask up front. Is that legitimate? Uh, just because something has grabbed my heart, uh, does that mean it's a responsible way to view the whole chapter? After all, there is a reason the parable of the prodigal son is so well known, and surely we should focus our attention there. Is it legitimate? Is it right to zoom in on these two verses at the beginning of the chapter that seem, at first glance anyway, to be comparatively less important? Well, yes, uh, it is. Now, how do I know that? Well, because of verse 3. So he told them this parable. Or your translation might say, then he told them this parable. In other words, Luke is telling us, Jesus told this parable, actually this series of three parables, uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons, uh, Jesus told them in response to something that's going on in verses 1 and 2. I trust you see that. Uh, verses 1 and 2, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So, or then, Jesus told them this parable. So what's going on in verses 1 and 2? And how do these parables relate to whatever it is that's going on there? Now, we'll come back to that in a minute. But first, I want to ask you a question. Um, you know these parables already, uh, especially the one about the lost sons. Um, and if you don't, if these stories are new to you, uh, the big ideas are really obvious, aren't they? I mean, I can fill in some uh, historical and cultural background that will shed some light on details. But the main thing is pretty clear right on the surface. There is a father who loves his sons. And his love reaches beyond every reason to cut off his ungrateful children. But instead, he opens his heart and his arms and his home in grace, and he restores the ungrateful prodigal to sonship. Now, here's the question. If I asked you right now to pray for one another, uh, whoever you're sitting with, or, or if you're sitting alone, if we paired you up with someone over Zoom uh, and asked you to pray for one another, if I asked you to take a few minutes to pray in response to this parable, what would you pray? What would you hope someone else would pray for you? Take half a minute to think about that, maybe quickly, quickly discuss it with whoever you're sitting with, and then I'll call us back together in 30 seconds or so. What would you pray for one another? What would you hope someone else prayed for you? Have a go.
Right. What did you come up with? Uh, what would you pray? Hold that thought and we will come back to it later. For now, let's go back to the text and uh, see what is it that's going on in these first two verses. Tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus, gathering around him, Luke tells us, to hear him speak. Tax collectors were uh, Jewish collaborators with the occupying Roman Empire, hated by their fellow Jews because they were working with the enemy. Uh, and more than just working with the enemy, they were corrupt. They were using their positions within the, the, the state bureaucracy to steal from their own people. And sinners, well, they were lawbreakers, breakers of the Ten Commandments or of other parts of the laws of Moses or of any of the hundreds of other laws that had developed in the codes and traditions of Israel in the 1500 years since Moses. They were uh, unclean, unholy sinners. And to eat with such people was out of the question for Pharisees and teachers of the law. Why? Well, we're holy men set apart by God. We would never defile ourselves by going into one of their homes, by sharing the intimacy of a meal with these sinners. They're unclean, unholy, unworthy. And this Jesus, this so-called rabbi from Nazareth, he receives them. He welcomes them. He even eats with them. You see what they're saying about Jesus? They're saying, there's us. And there's everyone else, the holy, the righteous, and everyone else. And this Jesus guy certainly isn't one of us. If he was, he would know the rules. He would know, he would know that you don't eat with these people. Jesus, you belong down here with the unclean, with the unholy, with the unworthy. That's what's going on in verses one and two. So. Jesus told them these parables. And I wonder if now you're beginning to see what Jesus is doing with these parables. He's receiving their insult. He's owning it. He's saying to these up here, these high and mighty ones, yes, you're right. <laughs> You've got it. I do receive sinners. I do welcome the unclean. I do eat with the unholy. I do invite into my home the unworthy. This man receives sinners and eats with them. By telling these three parables, Jesus is owning what they meant as an insult. Yes, I do, he says. Yes, I do. But he takes it even further, as if to say to them, you're on the right track. But you haven't seen just how far I will go for sinners. So I'm going to highlight just three ways that Jesus uses these parables to, to own the label they give him. The man who welcomes sinners. They mean it as derogatory, um, contemptuous, as, as an affront. But Jesus takes it and he owns it. He takes the label and makes it a banner that he holds up over himself as if to say, yes, I am. I am the one who receives sinners, who welcomes them and eats with them. So let me show you three ways that he does that. 
First, this man received sin, as they said. In response, three parables. In the first, a shepherd loses a sheep and goes searching for it. In the second, a woman loses a silver coin, a day's wage, and searches carefully for it. In the third, two sons are lost to a wise father, and he goes out to rescue them both. Look at verse 20. Now, uh, the younger son had deeply insulted his father. By asking for his share of the inheritance, he was, in effect, saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I'm not interested in you. I just want your stuff. I want the land. I want the flocks. I want the money. Now remember, family wealth was tied up mainly in the land itself. So for the father to give his son his portion of the estate means that he sold some land. Now why does that matter? It matters because it means this was public knowledge. Land transaction, transactions at the time were public knowledge. Everybody in the village and in the area knew what had happened. This wasn't a private, behind closed doors family insult. This young son had publicly disgraced his family, publicly humiliated his father. Now verse 20. He went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him was filled with compassion for him. Pause there. To come back to his father, this ungrateful prodigal son had to walk through the village, through the surrounding farmlands, in broad daylight, which we know because his father could see him from far away. It must have been daytime. So he was in sight of the whole community, all of whom knew what he had done. Now we know from um, from scholars of ancient Middle Eastern society, what would have happened to this returning boy? As soon as he was recognized, a mob would have formed. He would have been slandered, insulted, shamed, spat on, possibly beaten, though perhaps the villagers would have held back, expecting that the boy's father would beat him. And that's certainly what they would have thought was about to happen when they saw the father running. Back to the text, verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, was filled with compassion for him. His father knew what was about to happen to his boy. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. This boy came back in disgrace, knowing full well the shame, the humiliation, the hostility he would suffer. But against all the social rules, his father ran to him. Elderly Middle Eastern men do not run. It, 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 it's a mark of, of dignity to walk slowly in one's flowing robes. But this father picks up his robes, bears his legs, makes himself the object of shame, and runs to, and wraps himself around his boy as if to say to everyone else, I will take it. I will take your slander. I will take your insults. Spit on me. 
If you must beat anyone, beat me. Whatever you have in mind to do to my son, either do it to me or hold your peace. What is Jesus doing with this parable? This man receives sinners, the Pharisees had said. But this father didn't just receive. He ran too. He didn't wait on his doorstep for his son to make his way back to him so that he could merely receive him. He ran to him. Jesus is saying, I do receive sinners, but I don't just receive them. I run after them. I run after them to spare them the shame and the punishment they are due. The shame and the punishment are right, but if they repent of their sin, verses 7 and 10, there is joy in heaven and before the angels over every sinner who repents. If they repent of their sin, I will run to them, throw myself over them, and I will take it all. All the shame, all the punishment, I will take it on myself. I don't just receive sinners, I run after them. From the throne of heaven, through the shame, through the punishment, to cover them with myself. Verse 28, the father has thrown a party. Everyone's eating roast beef shawamas. Cool and the gang are belting out, celebrate good times, come on. The whole village is there. Everyone except the older brother. He's outside, angry, jealous, bitter, insulting his father no less than his younger brother had. And what does the father do? Verse 28, the elder brother refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, come in, son. His father went out, pleaded with him. Once again, it is the father who is gravely disrespected publicly. Once again, the father doesn't wait for his ungrateful, hard-hearted son to come back. He doesn't wait to merely receive. He goes out to him. What is Jesus doing with these parables? This man receives sinners, they said. Yes, Jesus is saying and much more than merely receive. As a shepherd goes out to rescue his lost sheep, as a woman will not just accept the loss of her silver coin, but will search carefully for it. As this father goes out to his lost sons, so I have come to seek and to save the lost. And by the way, Pharisees, that includes you. Second, this man eats with sinners, they had said. Verse 23, bring the fattened calf, kill it, prepare it for a great, great feast. What is Jesus doing with the story? Yes, he's saying, I eat with sinners, but much more than that, I am bringing them, these sinners, these unholy, these unworthy, I am bringing them into my father's house for the great feast. And by the way, Pharisees, that includes you, if you will repent. The prophet Isaiah foretells a, a coming day. In that day, he says, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. 
the Lord has spoken. He eats with sinners, they said. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And one day I will feast with them in the house of my father, Jesus is saying. Third, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Verse 21, the returning son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Bring a ring, put it on his finger, sandals on his feet. It's time to celebrate. The son of mine was dead. He's now alive. He was lost and is found. What is Jesus doing with this part of the story? Well, the servants are told to dress the son as servants dress a prince. The son is not told to go take a shower and find some clean clothes. The servants are told to dress him. The father restores his son to his proper place in the household. And more than that, whose was the best robe in the house? Well, it was the father's. It would be the father. It would be the robe the father wore on feast days on, on, and on special occasions. And uh, when all the village arrived to the feast and saw this once lost son, now dressed in his father's best robe, they would immediately know that reconciliation is, was total. And the father expects them to treat his son with the same respect, with the same dignity, with the same love that they would treat him. And likewise, the ring was most likely a signet ring, which means the father invests his son with, with the full authority of his name to transact any business on his behalf. Now think of that. This son, who had caused such loss, who had been so ungrateful, so disrespectful, so wasteful, who had, in effect, wished his father dead in favor of, of his assets, now given a signet ring, the authority of his father's name and all that that meant. What is Jesus doing with this story? This man welcomes sinners and eat with the, eats with them, they had said. Much more than that, Jesus is saying. I make them sons in the household of my father. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Pharisees had insulted him. That's what they meant. This man receives sinners and eats with them. It wasn't a compliment, but Jesus owns it. Yes, I do. And more than just receive, I have come seeking them and all who will repent. Even you, Pharisees and teachers of the law, even you, if you will repent, like all other sinners who repent, I will make sons in the house of my father. And yes, I eat with them. And that's just a foretaste of the great feast I will share with them in the house of my father in heaven. A feast which he is even now preparing. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. <laughs> Praise God, friends. Yes, he does. For if he did not, I would be lost and without any hope. And so would you. But the son still had to choose to receive it. The younger son did, and the elder brother, we don't know. But what about you, friend? Will you 
receive what is offered? Will you be welcomed? Will you repent? Will you allow the Father to wrap himself around you in Christ to shield you from the retribution that is just and due? Will you receive the Father's robe and ring? Will you be made a son, a daughter in the household of the Father of heaven? Well, if, you, if you're not sure whether you've ever, ever really done that, maybe right now you sense something happening in your heart. Maybe you feel like, like we imagine that son might have felt about to enter the village. And you look up and see from a distance the father running towards you. And just moments before, your heart held no hope of restoration. At best, you were hoping for a job. All of a sudden, you realize he's not running towards you to join in the judgment of the town. But he's running towards you to save you, to throw his arms around you and kiss you. Well, if something like that is happening in your heart right now, receive it. Thank God for it. And I'd love to pray with you after the service. So please stay behind and we can go into a breakout room and do that. Now, I asked you earlier what you would pray for one another in response to this chapter. Well, what did you say? What did you hope someone else would pray for you? Well, in a moment, I'll, uh, I'll tell you what I've prayed for you this week as I've prepared uh, for you individually uh, and for us as a church. But let's first go back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. Now, this was the first thing that stunned me when I read it this week, earlier this week, as I started to prepare. Verse 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. Now that part of Luke's report just blew my socks off, had I been wearing any at the time, I guess. And you might uh, quite rightly ask why. On the face of it, it seems quite a nothing thing to say, at least compared to the great demand of discipleship before it and this beloved parable right after it. But I think that's the point. Think of what has come just before it, chapter 14. If anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father and mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. This great mountain peak of Luke's gospel, this humanly speaking impossible call to the absolute devotion of discipleship. This call from Jesus to treasure Jesus, to treasure his kingdom and his kingdom agenda above all else in life. Absolute devotion. Now, isn't it, isn't it true that um, so often those uh, who live in this kind of, this sort of extreme devotion communicate to others, you're not worthy. You don't make the grade. You're not like me. You're not good enough. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes in verse 2 were the most wholeheartedly devoted people anyway. And that's exactly what their devotion felt like. Cold-hearted exacting, fastidious, unwelcoming. But not Jesus. There's something about Jesus that 
even when his call to follow him comes at an impossibly high price, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, that is. Treasure me above all else. Take up your cross and follow me on the road of suffering. Give up all you have and follow me. The most stunning thing happens. The tax collectors and the sinners draw near. Pharisees and the law, break, law teachers resist. Those who know they don't make the grade, who know they are unworthy, draw near. And those who are sure they do make the grade and that everyone else is unworthy, resist. So what have I been praying for you this week and for me? That God will, by his Holy Spirit, continue to shape us all ever more from the inside out to be more and more like Jesus. That our lives would show our devotion in a way that draws others to Christ. To hear what he has to say. This is more than just having the right answers to theological questions. We should want to have the right answers. That's important. But there's so much more to it than that. There's the reality of how our hearts are shaped by truth. The truth about God and about sin and about judgment, about Jesus and the cross and eternal life. People hear what you say, but your words come from your heart and they carry with them, they carry in them what is in your heart. Words carry much more than the surface level content. Don't you want your heart to be Jesus shaped so that your words, hard hitting as they may be sometimes, like chapter 4, uh, 14, my apologies, would cause those who know that they don't make the grade, who already know they're unworthy, your words, your devotion would cause others to draw near to Jesus. And yes, the reality is your devotion will divide, just as Jesus's did. Those who knew they were the unholy, the unclean, the unworthy, draw near. But those same words caused those who were so sure that they did make the grade to pull away, even to say that Jesus doesn't meet their standards of right and wrong. Much of the world, friends, thinks Jesus is unworthy of them. The more your heart is devoted to Jesus, the more you will divide people. Some will draw near to Jesus because of something they see and hear in you and feel from you. Many will revile you. They might not say so out loud. But in their hearts, they're saying, your devotion to Jesus and to the ministry of the gospel offends me. Devotion divides. So I pray for you and for me that we will divide, not because we want to be divisive people per se, but because our devotion to Jesus, our hearts being shaped like his, means that people will respond to us as they did to him. Some will draw near to Jesus, some will pull away. So I pray 
you will be insulted and that you will own the insult and wear it with joy as Jesus did. This man, this woman welcomes sinners, eats with them. Won't you bow your hearts with me as I pray? Father God, what can we do but give you thanks for the, the kind of God you are? Gracious Father, who has in Christ not just received us, but run after us. Come from heaven to earth to seek and to save the lost. That was us. Thank you, Father. We will one day celebrate the great feast with our Lord and Savior in your home. What a wonderful thing to look forward to. What an undeserved honor. Thank you, Father. Father, may it be now that you continue to shape our hearts more and more to be like Jesus. So that as we as we love him and as we love others in his name, some, many, will be drawn closer to Christ to hear what he has to say. We accept the reality that that will divide and at times that division may be painful. But let it be Jesus in us that people are responding to, drawing near or drawing away from. Make us that kind of people, Father. Let it be said of us, these are people who love sinners, who love the gospel, who love Jesus, whether, that, whether people love that or hate that. Give us the joy of owning that insult. Amen.